Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 52 of Unknown Orbits, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be talking about the well-beloved and hugely popular story, Flowers for Algernon. This is from the April 1959 issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Originally. Originally. It was originally written as a short story, and it won the Hugo Award as a short story in 1960. Then Mr. Keyes expanded it out into novel length, which was a Nebula winner in 1966. I believe it was nominated for a Hugo as well, but lost. So it was such a great story that it was award-winning as a short story and award-winning as a novel. And as I said in the introduction, this is a greatly beloved, well-remembered, very popular story for a lot of us growing up in the 1960s, 1970s, and I think even beyond. And not just because it was one of those required reading books in high school. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of us were exposed to it. I know that I was. It's funny because it's on a list of banned books because apparently, and I don't remember this. I hadn't known that. There was apparently some sexual elements in it where the main character was either having sexual thoughts about another character, but I don't remember that personally. I think one of the few elements that were really expanded into the book was his relationship changing with his teacher into dating her. Yes. And that might have included that. Well, you know, I'm a little confused as to whether I read the short story or not. I might have read the short story and not the novel or the other way around. It's possible that I read the novel and not the short story. And to be honest with you, I'm going on my memory from many years ago. So at any rate, let's get into the actual story here. So the story starts out with a character named Charlie, who is a janitor. He's a low IQ, and he gets involved in a research project where they had successfully surgically altered a mouse named Algernon and increased the mouse's intelligence. I think tripled. Was it tripled? I believe so. So it was significant. I don't know how you determine how you have a, like a triply smart mouse, like they go through the maze quicker or something. They go for the Gouda instead. <laughs> so Charlie gets into this program, and they perform this surgery on Charlie. And not only does his intelligence increase, it increases to near genius levels. This is written in epistolary style, which is the style that is written like a diary or letters or notes, a collection of documents. Yeah, I think the word comes from like postings somewhere. Yeah. So anything that comes in segments. Another famous example of this is Dracula. If you've ever read the original novel Dracula, that was written in the form of letters back and forth between all these different characters for the most part. I'm going to pretend that I knew that all along. Okay. So 
Charlie has this new life where he's living a good life as an intelligent person. He's helping out with the research project. And at a certain point, Algernon begins to degenerate. And Algernon the mouse starts to lose his intelligence. Charlie realizes that there's something wrong with the surgery and that that's probably what's going to happen to him. And that is exactly what happens to him, that he degenerates and he goes back to being a low IQ individual. And this is all told through notes that Charlie writes. One of the magic parts of this story is at the beginning, it's very clumsily written, a lot of misspelling, bad grammar, something that you would expect a low IQ person, you know, written in that style. And then the grammar and the spelling and the eloquence increases as his intelligence increases. And then the opposite happens at the end of the story where the eloquence and the grammatical construction degenerates back down to the level of being very crude at the very end. And it's heartbreaking. It's a tragic, heartbreaking story. I think the form puts you in Charlie's head and you empathize with him. And then there's that fear of losing your faculties. Right. It's a magnificently beautiful story. That's why everybody loves it, because it's heartbreaking. You know, some of the best stories are the ones that are sad and heartbreaking. Yeah. And this is one of the all-time greats. The story ends where he's dying, and he requests that somebody remembers to put flowers on Algernon's grave. Real tearjerker yeah, That's the a real tearjerker moment. So I don't know how many times I can say this, but of all of the stories that we've done, in our year on the podcast, this is probably the one that more people remember, more people read, especially those of us who read it in school. I think it is still taught. When we did our previous episode where we talked about reading lists for schools, and I did some crude research, I did find Flowers for Algernon was still listed on a lot of high school reading lists. So it's still out there as required reading for a lot of kids. I'm glad to hear that. So in terms of the structure of the story, one of the things as a writer that I admire about this story is that by writing it in this epistolary style where you're reading the thoughts of Charlie, you can see things that Charlie can't see. And that's powerful. That's a powerful tool as a writer to be able to have your protagonist experiencing life and not realizing some things that are happening around him are going to happen to them. But giving you enough information for you to figure it out. Exactly. Now, technically, this would be an unreliable narrator. Oh, yes. But in a good way. Typically, an unreliable narrator is used to try to trick the reader or to mislead the reader to think that one thing's going to happen and then another thing happens. So it's a way to mislead people. But in this case, you know what's happening. You know what's going to happen. You know how this is going to end. And that's where the power of the storytelling comes in, is planting that in the reader's mind and then the reader seeing that Charlie doesn't fully understand it, certainly at the end. That's definitely pathos. Yes, absolutely. So there's a lot here to get from this as a writer. I mean, is there any other part of it that you can think of that stands out for you as a writer? Tons. 
Charlie's slow improvement. Just as a side note, I've done things where you want to gradually introduce something and gradually grow it. And it's kind of a pain to do. It takes patience. Yeah, to get the rhythm right. And one thing I I noticed about the story, and this is solely workmanship. We have a long intro of Charlie getting to know him and him improving. Then we have the main part of the story, and they're roughly equal lengths. And then the end part of the story where he starts to lose his faculties. There's no point in there except the ending. So we go through it really quickly. It's like half the length of the other two sections. Right. And that's part of the tragedy of it. It happens so quickly that that makes it even more tragic. So that's the good lesson in pacing, you know, that you take your time telling the story to introduce the situation, to introduce the characters, to get you to identify with Charlie. And then you have that whole middle section, which is him reaping the fruits of his newly found higher intelligence, like getting a girlfriend and being involved in the research. That should be a longer part. That's the one part of a story like this that you would want to dwell on and stretch out because you literally get him to the point where he's almost to the happily ever after point, and then you snatch it all away. I think a rapid climax in this case works and helps to put more of an exclamation point on the tragedy. It does, but I do argue it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, a more pedantic writer would assume that that section has to be the same length as the the growth, the, the beginning section. Yeah, I could see how a writer would make that assumption, yes. But as we made the point in a different podcast, you are in control. The only purpose of that last part of the story is the ending, so... As the writer in control, you can speed it up to get there. But in this story, the speed of the loss adds an element as well. So a lesser writer might have tried to mirror the opening section. That's a valid tool for a writer, is you write something earlier in the novel, and then later on you return to it, and you, you almost follow the same rhythm and beat of something that happened earlier, and just repeat it differently. That's a valid tool for a writer. But in this particular case, what Keyes did that was so good is he realized that once Charlie figured out what was going to happen to him, because he's watching it happen to Algernon the mouse. You know, he's working in the research facility. He sees Algernon degenerating, and he realizes this is my fate. And once he realizes it, then the reader realizes it, and the reader knows what's coming. So there's no point in dragging that out. So if you know that this is inevitable, this is where the story is going to go, head right straight to it. And that was the right choice. I give Keyes a lot of credit for that. The one thing that he didn't build on is Charlie gets smarter than the people around him for a while. Yeah, he's like near genius level, yeah. So the roles have reversed. Yes, Like I said, I haven't read this since probably the early 1970s, so I'm relying in part on my memories of having read it, not remembering whether I read the short story or the novel, and then that wonderful movie adaptation starring Cliff Robertson. 
So I'm kind of mixing the two of those things up in my head a little bit here as we think about it. As I was rereading the short story, I was picturing every scene in that movie. And it was a very faithful movie. Yeah, it was. A great job by Cliff Robertson. Probably the highlight of his career. Yeah. Terrific movie. I know that that was, you know, the old stereotype of the English teacher uh, saying, okay, we're going to watch a movie for the next two periods. Oh, yeah. You know, Flowers for Algernon would have been one of the ones that, that would have been uh, played in a classroom. Okay, and the other would be Johnny Tremaine. Well, for us, it was Jason and the Argonauts. I saw Johnny Tremaine three years in a row. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of sucks. <laughs> the same movie, unless it's a really, well, Jason and the Argonauts. Who's going to complain about seeing Jason and the Argonauts over and over again? And of course, um, Bill trivia here, Johnny Tremaine was later remade as Starship Troopers. <laughs> Seriously, watch them back to back. Yeah, I'd it's like the to see him. Plot. I'd like to see him play that one in a classroom. <laughs> so yeah, what a wonderful story. Anything else to add as far as the structure of the story or a small note which I always think is something that's overlooked. Classically, this is explained as writing something in an accent. Charlie's inability to write perfect English i'm counting that as an accent yeah that that's the same thing yes you do not want to be 100 percent accurate oh god no you want to be like 50 percent accurate yes you want to sprinkle bits here and there because i have read people who put a great deal of effort into having a character with a foreign accent and getting it just phonetically right and it's unreadable yeah it's one of those weird mental things that human brains do that doesn't seem to make sense you know that it rejects accurate transcription of an accent or a dialect but it is more willing to accept a reduced version of it i think it's because your brain has to interpret the printed letters there into this thing it's an extra layer of effort yes that's probably it is it's, it's too hard you're making your reader work too hard to read your work. Yeah, all you need is an occasional Magara, and yeah. that's just a reminder of who he is. Exactly. So just to give you a little background on Mr. Keyes, which will lead into another discussion, he was not a prolific writer. He did write some other science fiction stories. He actually worked for Atlas Comics in the early 1950s, now, Atlas Comics is the company that later became Marvel Comics. Okay. And Mr. Keyes actually worked for Stan Lee. He actually worked under Stan Lee mainly as a copy editor, I believe. I don't think he wrote a lot of science fiction stories. So he had that practical background in writing, but really didn't contribute a lot to the field beyond this one magnificent piece of work. There have been a bunch of writers who have done that, that they were heavy into a different career and just had this one burst of creativity. Well, let's take a look at a couple examples. There's some great examples in the world of science fiction of what I would call one-hit wonders. Now, that doesn't mean they only wrote one novel or that they only wrote one piece of science fiction, which may be the case in some cases, but they really only were known for the one thing in science fiction, and that was it. So very much in the mold of a musical one-hit wonder. Yeah, so like a band that had that one song that they're really famous for, and they sold a million records, and 
Then their second album didn't do so good. They had a single, but it wasn't hugely popular. And then their third album was terrible, and the band broke up. And for a while, they refused to play that one song at yeah. their concerts. Yeah, and then 20 years later, you know, two-thirds of the band got back together for a reunion tour, and they all had peace with playing that one hit song over and over again. So it's kind of like that. Looking back on a couple of episodes we did recently, they would qualify. So the first one that comes to mind is Canical for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. That was episode 38. That was definitely a one-hit wonder. And we did discuss the deficiencies in the sequel in that podcast. But in that case, he did write a sequel, but it was many, many years later. He'd never finished it, though. It was finished post-mortem. After he died, his heirs finished it. So that definitely qualifies for that one-hit wonder category where you don't even get the sequel finished during your lifetime. That's a great example of a one-hit wonder. And that was, again, like this story, and we talked about it, I believe, in that episode at some length. I think that was the one where we talked about required reading in high school. Yeah, yeah. So it was. It was like Flowers for Algernon. It was one that many, many people read in high school or junior high school as part of the English curriculum. So if you want to hear more about the Canical for Leibowitz, check out our episode 38. And by the way, they really should have turned it into a movie at some point. I'm surprised. It would have made a good miniseries. You know, with the long-form television that you have now, where you can do like a six-episode or an eight-episode TV show, I think that's the perfect format for that. Because that was, from my recollection of having read it, that it's like three parts, three distinct sections. And you could very easily break that up into like two episodes for the first part, two episodes for the middle part, and then two or three episodes for the last part. That would work very well. So yeah, that's a great candidate. Along those same lines, speaking of the post-apocalyptic stuff, Alas, Babylon by Pat Frank. That was a one hit. Pat Frank did write some other things. Alas, Babylon, again, was another one that was required reading in a lot of public schools. I think I remember he wrote a couple other things, but that was his only science fiction story. Yes. We talked in a previous episode about Howard Fast, the very large ant story, which was not the greatest thing we've ever talked about. But Howard Fast did write enough science fiction where he had an anthology of his science fiction stories done at one point. But he was not at all known as a science fiction writer. But he was hugely successful later as a historical writer, writing historical fiction. Oh, yeah. One of the big movies. Spartacus. He wrote Spartacus. Yeah. So Pat Frank would fall into that category of somebody who had that one big science fiction hit. It would be like going back to our music analogy, where Pat Frank is more like the crossover country to rock and roll or vice versa hit. Especially in the 1970s, you had country artists who suddenly had a major hit on rock and roll radio. You had somebody like John Denver who, you know, crossed over. You had Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. So Pat Frank was kind of like the crossover country to rock, rock to country example where they were primarily known for their work in one type of music and then just through some miracle 
one of their songs leaked out and was a big hit on the other charts, one that they were not known for. So that's a good analogy for Pat Frank, I think, and Howard Fast, for that matter. Yeah. So the only other one that I have is another one that we talked about recently, The Great Nebraska Sea by Alan Donzig, episode 48. Now that's the perfect one-hit wonder because we literally could not find anything that he had written other than this one story. Yeah, and we do have some resources available to us. Yeah, we really tried. We really dug and tried to find any evidence that Alan Dodzig had ever written another science fiction story or any kind of piece of fiction ever, anywhere, and could not find any trace of it. And that is a often anthologized story, very popular, very well-remembered by a lot of people. So that is the ultimate one-hit wonder. That's like disco duck. Oh. Remember that song? Whoever the guy was that did disco duck had his one moment in the sunshine and then vanished from the face of the earth. He's not even going to the state fair circuit playing the state fairs. No, 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 because he was beaten to death by an angry mob. (laughs) Most likely. So do you have any other one-hit wonders in science fiction? I'm not sure if this counts. I believe Pierre Boulle, Planet of the Apes, I think that was his only big book. That was his only big science fiction book. He did write Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, okay. So he did write some other things. So he, again, he's probably more like the crossover country to rock type of guy who had a hit on both sides of the charts. But I don't think beyond those two books, he was known for much else. And Planet of the Apes is pretty huge. I'm sure there are tons of others, especially in science fiction stories. Right. I'm sure if we dug a little further, and actually, if any of you listeners have any suggestions, please forward them our way. Why don't we remind people, if you want to comment on any podcast, if you go to our homepage, unknownorbits.com, then go to the Episodes tab, you can select an episode and leave a comment on it. Yeah, you can also comment in Podbean or whatever app that you're using, and we will usually get notifications of that, and we'll try to respond. Please feel free to suggest any other one-hit writers that we've overlooked, Do you have any further thoughts on this wonderful story, Flowers for Algernon? I have one small geeky point. I hate the word geeky, but I'm starting to almost think we need a segment, Steve Gets Pedantic. I'm up for that. In this story, which admittedly was written a long time ago, when Algernon the mouse loses his faculties and dies, they do an autopsy. And one of the indications is that there was a smoothing of the cerebral convolutions, which technically is a genetic disease known as lysencephaly. So here's where I get pedantic. The reason this is supposed to be an indication is that it's a Victorian belief that the brain started out smooth and as you gain knowledge would develop folds. So I think there's even a movie with Christopher Lee, where there was a creature that was sucking the knowledge out of people, and when they did autopsies, their brains were smooth. Ah. Well, 
this is not true. Okay. This is right up there with saying that the eyes retain an imprint of the last thing they saw. It's all Victorian. Or reading bumps on your head to determine whether how intelligent you were. Phrenology. Or whether you might be a psycho killer. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that bothered me a little bit. Yeah, it was, you know, he worked in comics. So, you know, he probably (laughs) wasn't the most scientifically knowledgeable guy. He knew one of his neighbors was a doctor, and he's like, hey, I'm writing this story, you know, and what do you think about this? And the doctor was like a gynecologist or something. <laughs> well, it was 1960, so the yeah. doctor took a cigarette out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for episode 52. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.